This morning, I am beginning a new sermon series. We're going to be going through the New Testament book of 1 Thessalonians, and hopefully this clicker will work. There we go. 1 Thessalonians was a letter written by Paul, one of the leaders of the early church, to a church in Thessalonica that he started in the year about 49 AD, and then he wrote this letter about the year 52 AD. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, let's start there, okay? There is an Old Testament and a New Testament. Old Testament is before Jesus. New Testament begins with the life of Jesus. There's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, about the life of Jesus. After that comes the book of Acts, which is the story of the early church after Jesus ascended to heaven. And then you have a lot of letters, letters written by early church leaders like Paul and Peter, uh, written to churches uh, to instruct them about what Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was all about, and to apply that to specific circumstances going on in their church. And then, of course, the New Testament ends with Revelation, which is a whole other book entirely. Um, But there's a lot of letters written by people like Paul to churches that they started, and this is one of those, 1 Thessalonians, that we're going to look at. Um, We're going to look at a chapter 1 over a couple weeks, again, as Amy said, we'll take how long it takes, right? We'll take however long it takes to go deep and understand this book. Um, but I want to begin just by going back to Acts 17, because in the book of Acts, you have the account of Paul's experience in Thessalonica when he started the church. And so we're going to start there. Uh, this is the map for Thessalonica is in modern-day Greek Greece. It was the capital of the Roman province of Macedonia at that time. And so we're going to read Acts 17, 1 through 10, just to give you an idea of Paul's experience in this church that he started. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. But the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house." They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. And then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. So Paul, along with some others, including Silas, and we're going to find out another young man named Timothy, uh, they go to Thessalonica the capital of the Roman Roman province of Macedonia. And Paul, as was his custom, preaches in the synagogue to the Jews to try to persuade them that Jesus, this Jesus who came and died, was not just an ordinary Jew, but he was the Messiah, the Christ, the one who had been foreshadowed in the Old Testament, who was going to come, who was Lord in human flesh to save his people. And some believed, but others did not. And they started a mob and a riot, and they drove him out of town. And so Paul and Silas had to escape, but had started a church there. And a couple years later, he writes this letter, 1 Thessalonians. And we're going to read right now just from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10, to get a feel for this letter that he writes to this church 
that he had started. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. And you know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. And they tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. This is God's word. Let me pray before we continue. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would speak through me with power, with the Holy Spirit, with great conviction, and that the Holy Spirit would open our hearts to receive this message, to receive this word, and to apply it to our lives, that we might be transformed this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So there's a lot in this chapter about the relationship between Paul and the Thessalonians, and I'm going to look at that next week. This week, I want to focus more on the message that he brought to the Thessalonians, which he calls in verse 4, in verse 5, he calls it our gospel. That word gospel is from the Greek word euangelion, which means good news. And so I want to look at this gospel message, what we learn about it in chapter 1, this message that Paul brings to the Thessalonians. And there's two things in particular that we learn that I want to focus on. The first we learn about the gospel message and what it means to be a Christian is that God is the initiator of our faith. God is the initiator of our faith. Go back to verses 4 through 5. This clicker doesn't seem to be working, right? So we're just going to have to zoom from the back. Verses 4 to 5, he says this, For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. See that word there that I highlighted? We know that God has chosen you. The gospel came to you with power, with the Holy Spirit, with deep conviction. Not just you chose God, but God has chosen you. So Paul looks at their lives and says, it's clear that God has chosen you. That before you believed, there was someone who was pursuing you. Someone who was coming after you. Someone calling you. Someone drawing you. That God is the initiator of your faith. This is very common language going all the way back to Deuteronomy, very back in the beginning of God's relationship with his people. It says, The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. 
But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Everybody's just saying, God chose you, not because of anything in you, not because you were more powerful or, or better than anyone else. God just chose you because he chose you, because he loves you. And this language of choosing continues into the New Testament, Ephesians 1, 3 through 5. Paul says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in in accordance with his pleasure and will. So if you believe in Jesus, if you trust him for your salvation, it's because God chose you, that God is the initiator of our faith, that there is a sense in which before you can respond in faith, God has already initiated this thing. He's chosen you. He's called you. He has drawn you to himself. He has revealed himself to you. And I don't know what it's like for you when you look back on your faith and where it started. For me, I know when I first came to faith, I thought it was that I had chosen God, that he was lucky to have me on his team, you know, so to speak. And then as time went on and as I got to know God more, I came to realize, no, no, that's not the way it worked at all, that God had chosen me. For whatever reason, he had chosen me and called me and drawn me to himself, revealed himself to me, and that I was blessed to be on his team, so to speak. In fact, go back to Ephesians and what the Bible says about the difference between those who know God and those who do not. Paul writes, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Notice the contrast there. He says, it's not that once you were bad, and now you're good. Once you were naive and ignorant, and now you are enlightened and wise. He says, the contrast is that before you knew God, you were dead, spiritually dead in your transgressions and sins, and God made you alive. Now, raise your hand if you are responsible for your own physical birth, right? If you made yourself physically alive, raise your hand. No, you had no choice in the matter. You were brought to life physically. And he says, in the same way, you were spiritually dead. And because you were spiritually dead, you could not make yourself spiritually alive. But God made you alive in Christ Jesus. That God is the initiator of your faith. That if you have spiritual life in you, if you know God, if you are following him, it's only because he initiated that. He brought you to life. Or, as John put it, we love because he first loved us. If you love God, it's only because he first loved you. God is the initiator of our faith. In fact, go back to that word gospel, euangelion. It translates, as I said, as good news. And that's important. It's not good advice. It's not, here's the Good advice on what you must do to be right with God, to be saved. Follow these steps. It's good news about what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. 
that the gospel is that Jesus Christ, even though we were sinners separated from a holy God, that Jesus lived the perfect life we couldn't live. He died a sacrificial death on the cross in our place. He rose again from the grave to conquer sin and death that all who trust in him would not perish but have eternal life. It's good news to receive. It's not good advice that you have to follow in order to earn salvation. God is the initiator of our faith. And when Paul looks at the Thessalonians, he says, I see evidence in your life of this faith that God has initiated in you. I see that there's a power that has come into your life from the outside that has brought you from death to life. I see that you've reoriented your life from self-centeredness to God-centeredness. I see evidence that the Holy Spirit is in your life. Again, he says, We know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. I see evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life. I see evidence of spiritual life. I see evidence of spiritual fruit, that God is doing something in your life. He's brought you from death to life. You know, that's the primary evidence of salvation. Sometimes it's like, People think it's like, well, did you pray a prayer when you were seven years old at VBS, you know? That's not the evidence of salvation. That might have been where you were saved, but the evidence of salvation is that, is, is that the Holy Spirit is at work in your life, that there's evidence of fruit, spiritual fruit in your life, which we'll get to what that means. There's evidence that, of a reorientation of your life from self-centeredness to God-centeredness. There's a sensitivity to God. Is the Holy Spirit in your life? Is there evidence would we be able to look at you like Paul and say, I see that God has saved you, that God has initiated you, that the Holy Spirit is in your life? You know, just as an aside, I get up here and I say a lot of words every Sunday. This right here is a great prayer. You know, we have a uh, pre-service prayer team that meets over there. Before the service, you are welcome to come half an hour early and join them in praying for this service, praying for me, praying for the worship team, praying for all who come. How important is that? right? To every week be lifting up all that happens here. Because Paul says, my, my, my message did not come with just words. But it came with power. It came with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. That's a great prayer to pray for me. It's a great prayer to pray for anyone who's a, a teacher or a preacher. That the word, it would not just be words, but it also would come with the Holy Spirit power and deep conviction. And you can pray for yourself as well. That as you come into this place, that it would just not be words that you hear that go in one ear and out the other, or maybe that just say, oh, that was a nice message. But instead that it would come and that the Holy Spirit would apply it to your life. That it would produce fruit, produce a change in your life. God is the initiator of our faith. Why does it matter? Why does it matter that God is the initiator of your faith, that he chose you, that he gave you spiritual life by his Holy Spirit? Why does that matter? Why can't we just say, well, you know, some choose and some don't choose? Why does it matter to, to think that God is the initiator of our faith, that before we can choose, he's chosen us. Before we can love, he's loved us. Why do you think that matters? Well, first of all, I think it's meant to give you comfort and assurance that if God began this good work in you, he's going to carry it on to completion. In fact, that's Philippians 1. Philippians 1, 4 through 6. If we can go forward one more. 
In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's meant to be a source of comfort and assurance that if God initiated this thing, he's going to see it through to completion. It's not just that I chose and now I can choose the other direction and all of that. It's no, God has chosen me. He's called me to himself. I belong to him. And if he began this good work, he will carry it on to completion. And Romans 8, 28 to 29 is another source of comfort and assurance. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. This is meant to be a verse of comfort and assurance that God began the good work in you from before you were born, that he has chosen you and he will work everything together for your good. He began the good work, he'll finish the good work, and in between he will work everything for your good. Why does it matter that God is the initiator of your faith? It's not just all on you. It's, it's on him. He initiated it. He'll complete it. He will work for good. It's meant to bring you comfort and assurance. And I think it's also meant to help you to recognize that your life has purpose. You're not just an accident. I'm missing Ephesians 2.10. That's okay, I'll read it. Ephesians 2.10 tells us this. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. God is the initiator. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. So in other words, why does it matter that God is the initiator of our faith? Not just because it gives us comfort and assurance that he began the good work, he'll complete it, he's always doing good works in our life, but also it's meant to help you to see that your life has purpose. Your life is not meaningless. Your life is not an accident. God has created you in Christ Jesus to do good works which he's prepared in advance for you to do. He's initiated your faith. He has good works for you. There's a purpose to your life. That's why it matters that God is the initiator. It's supposed to give us comfort and assurance and also give us a sense of purpose. God is the initiator of your faith. He's the initiator of your salvation, and he is also the power source for your sanctification. Now I can put that up there. That God has chosen you. God has given you spiritual life by his Holy Spirit, and God provides the power for your spiritual growth. He began it, and if it's going to continue, you need to stay connected to him. It's an easy kind of metaphor or picture there. You know, it's as if I, if I had a computer and it ran out of battery and died, I said, well, you know, what can I do? My computer ran out of battery. You might say, well, have you tried plugging it in? Because your computer was meant to run on power, and the power comes when you plug it in to the power source. And you were meant to be plugged into the power source, and that is God, his Holy Spirit not to do life on your own as your battery drains, right? But to be plugged in. John, uh, in John 15, Jesus put it this way, John 15, 4 through 8. He said, remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do Nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. 
Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Can you, if you're here, look at those verses that are in yellow there. Those are strong words, aren't they? Apart from me, you can do nothing of spiritual value, nothing of spiritual significance. You are a branch that has been broken off from the vine. But he also promises that if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. That is a promise that most of us, I am guessing, have never truly seen fulfilled, that we would become that unified, that united to our Lord, that the things we ask for are in line with his will. And so the things we ask for just are done because our hearts are aligned with his hearts, our minds aligned with his mind, our will is aligned with his will, and so the things that we ask for come to pass because we are that one with the Lord. Can you imagine what that would be like? That is the promise here. Plug into the power source. Live your life walking by the Spirit. And he says, this is what it will be like. Your will will be aligned with mine so that everything you ask for will be yours. This is not some name-it-claim-it technique here, right? This is a promise that as you stay connected with him and as his words fill you, that the things that you ask will be his will. Stay connected to the power source. Galatians 5, I mentioned this whole spiritual fruit idea that's come up. This is what he means when he says that. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is what will be produced through your life. This is what your life will reflect if you stay connected to him. You will bear much fruit, he says. And Paul looks at their lives and he says, I see these things. He says, we continue to remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, your endurance inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. He sees it outflowing from their lives. So bottom line is this. God is the initiator of your salvation. The Holy Spirit is the power for your sanctification, for your spiritual life. So how are you staying plugged in to the power source? You know, we just had some people come up front here and share. And they gave some ideas, right? Rejoice in the Lord always. Come and worship him and pray and praise him. Stay connected to him. The Emotionally Healthy Spirituality Course talks a great deal about how to stay connected to Jesus throughout the day, how to stay connected, you know, to be in his word so that his word remains in you, to be in prayer, to be in worship, to be in fellowship with one another. How are you doing with staying connected, staying plugged in? Or is your battery just draining like a computer that is not plugged in to the power source? Jesus said this, he said, Matthew 4, 4, it is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Most of you would not skip your daily meals because you know that is where you get your energy from. But we too often skip 
this daily meal, our daily bread, right? We too often skip thinking we could just get by on our own strength. But man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Ephesians 1, 17 to 20. Let, me, let this be your prayer, my prayer for you. Paul said, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe, that power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. Following up on this analogy of the power source and staying plugged into the Holy Spirit to God, here he says that power that is available to you is the same power that rose Jesus Christ from the grave. Amen? He says that is the power that is available to you. The power that conquered the grave is available to you. He says, I want the eyes of your heart to be enlightened that you may know his incomparably great power for us who believe. So if nothing else this morning, how are you doing with getting plugged into the power source? Are you spending that time in his word and in prayer and in fellowship and in worship? Or are you just draining like a computer that's not plugged in? I'm going to spend a little less time on point two here. There's, if we can get to point two. So point one was this, that God is the initiator of our faith. First Thessalonians 1 also gives us a role to play as well, and it's this. Our role is to repent and believe. To repent and believe. Yes, God is the initiator of our salvation, but we are not just passive creatures, and God just does what he does, and we can't resist it. That's not how this thing works. God initiates, God calls, God draws, God reveals, and then we have a responsibility. We have a role as well in our salvation, in our sanctification. It's this, to repent and believe. He ends 1 Thessalonians 1 by saying this, they tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. So chapter one closes with this statement and this sums up the gospel message very well. They turned, they repented from their idolatry, from false gods to serve the living and true God and they put their hope in Jesus. Our role, God initiates, our role is to repent, to turn from the things that we are trusting in, the false gods, the idols that we have made, and to put our hope in Jesus for salvation. Now, when we talk about idolatry, of course, back in Paul's day, there were actual statues that people would bow down to and worship and see as gods. They lived in Thessalonica, 50 miles from Mount Olympus, where the Greek gods were supposed to have lived. And certainly a lot of people in those days believed that if you gave the idols their proper respect and worship, they, you'd get rain for your crops and protection at sea and have your other needs met. But idols are not just statues. Even Paul knew that. He said in Ephesians 5, 5, he said, For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Paul knew that wherever there's immorality, impurity, wherever there's greed, underneath the surface there's an idol. That there's people trusting in something other than God 
looking to something other than God for their joy, for their comfort, for their salvation, for their life. And an idol is anything that is more important to your identity and happiness than God. Anything that you look to, to save you, to give you peace, to give you comfort, to give you joy. Anything that you're looking to to give you what only God can give you. It could be something specific, like a specific relationship, or money, or status, or reputation, the approval of others, brains, beauty, love, sex, freedom, individuality, a politician or a social cause. Many things can be idols, things that we look to to save us, look to to give us life, look to to give us joy and comfort. And underneath, there's often deeper idols, right? The desire for approval. The desire for happiness or peace. The desire for power and influence. The desire for security and control of your environment. John Calvin said that the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. It's a great way of putting it, that we're always making idols, things that we look to for our salvation and comfort and joy besides looking to God. And so we turn to YouTube or to shopping or to mindlessly surfing the internet, or social media, or alcohol, or flirting, or work, leisure, a hobby. We turn to anything else other than God to give us what only He can give us. Counselor and author David Powelson put it this way. He said, As something or someone besides Jesus Christ taken title to your heart's functional trust, preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear, and delight, to who or what do you look for life-sustaining stability, security and acceptance? What do you really want and expect out of life? What would really make you happy? What would make you an acceptable person? Where do you look for power and success? Just a number of questions to try to discern and diagnose where are the idols in my heart? What am I looking to besides God? And those idols take hold of your emotions. They fill you with fear and anger and guilt, disillusionment when they're threatened, when they're lost, when only God provides what you're looking for. Jeremiah 2, 12 to 13, God says this, Be appalled at this, O heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. They could turn to me and have a spring of living water that would never go dry, but instead they have forsaken me and they're building their own cisterns here that are broken, that can't hold water, that are always leaking. That's an idol, he says. That's an idol, trusting in something that is leaking, that is never going to provide what it is you're looking for. And so back to 1 Thessalonians 9 to 10. Paul says, They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. They turned from idols. They turned away from the things they were trusting in to serve the living and true God. You know, one of the things about idols is that Typically, if you are looking to an idol to give you something and it doesn't give it to you, you usually just scrap the idol and look to something else, right? If there's someone who's not giving you what you're looking for, you scrap them and you look to someone else. If there's something you're looking to and it's not coming through for you, well, just get rid of it and find something else. Look to something else. Because it's not real. It's a fake God. But this says that they turned from idols to serve the living and true God. He's true regardless of circumstances. He's true regardless of whether you think he's coming through for you or not. He's true whether or not you think you're getting anything out of it. 
He's true. And so we can follow and serve him regardless of circumstances, even if we suffer. As it said in 1 Thessalonians 1.6, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. Even though you were suffering, you still worshiped him and served him because he's true. In other words, the question is not, does this work for me? The question is, is it true? When it comes to idols, it's, well, is this working for me or not? But when it comes to God, the question is not, does God work for me? Is Jesus working for me? Is, th- is this Christianity thing working for me? Am I getting what I want out of this? The question is, is it true? And if it's true, then it's true regardless of whether you think it's working for you or not. It's true regardless of circumstances. It's true even if you suffer. God is the living and true God, worthy of worship, worthy of service, regardless of how your circumstances go. The question is, is Jesus who he claimed to be? Is he God in human flesh? Is he the the Savior, the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to God? Is he the Lord of lords and King of kings? If he is, then align your life with that truth. Then turn from everything you've been trusting in to serve the living and true God, to live for him. Jonah chapter 2, 8 through 9 says this, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I vowed I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. This is not just for those who do not believe. This message is for all of us because the human heart is a perpetual idol factory and we are continually turning from God to trust in other things whether it's a substance, whether it's a person, whether it's something deeper like this idol of approval or reputation or comfort or whatever it may be, we are perpetually turning from God to serve these idols of our hearts. This morning, I'm encouraging and challenging you to follow in the footsteps of these Thessalonians, to turn from your idols, to stop clinging to worthless idols, to turn to the living and true God who is true regardless of circumstances. Again, let me sum this up. God is the initiator of our faith. God's the initiator of our faith. That he chose you, that he gave you spiritual life by his Holy Spirit, that he provides the power for your spiritual growth. He is the initiator. And that is meant to bring you comfort and to recognize also that you, your life has a purpose. So plug into the power source. Do not let yourself drain away when that kind of power, the power that rose Jesus from the grave, is available to you. Plug in to his word, to prayer, to community, to worship. And repent this morning and believe. Turn from idolatry. Turn from your idols to serve the living and true God. Why don't you take a minute in silence between you and the Lord and let him deal with whatever it is that was brought up during the sermon and then the worship team will come forward and we'll respond in worship.
Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would apply these words to our lives, that you would speak directly to us whatever it is that we need to hear, that you would empower us to destroy and smash the idols in our lives, to turn from these worthless idols to the living and true God, to the spring of living water, to the power that is available that rose Jesus from the grave. Fill us afresh with your spirit today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.